Those are the new ones, the big ones uh, now. Uh, yeah, I'd say just disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. And this is something that I always tell clients anyway. Uh, you know, sharing information, even if it's bad, the information is what it is. Uh, and usually holding it back is not going to help you. And in most cases, it's going to hurt you. So they're emphasizing disclosure. And I, I agree with that. I think that even, I, and this is more anecdotal, not necessarily empirical, but people typically don't sue people that they trust and believe and that they like and so if you're somebody that's communicating regularly if you're somebody that's telling them the good stuff and the bad stuff they're going to look at you as somebody who's trustworthy because you are acting trustworthy and so if something bad does happen this we're in this industry this is a risky industry these investments are not guaranteed bad things do happen and it doesn't mean that somebody was doing something bad or nefarious so if one of those bad things do happen and you've been very communicative and stay that way, you're just as the issuer going to save yourself a lot of headache. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Nick McGrew. Uh, Nick's a lawyer at Polymath Legal. He assists developers, syndicators, investors, and entrepreneurs in syndications, uh, in business formations, real estate and business transactions, and contracts. Uh, expertise is in navigating the SEC regulations and other common issues right, for multifamily investors. So he's created syndications, allowing his clients to raise and acquire over $2 billion in assets, a uh, 10-year professor uh, of business law, uh, teaches business and real estate classes for undergraduate and graduate uh, MBA and law school students. Uh, and so uh, Nick's going to dive into a number of topics uh, to actually the next two days uh, over uh, the some new SEC rules, uh, finder fees, which I get questions about all the time, uh, and even working with uh, broker dealers, financial advisors. There's even some, some things that came out towards the end of <laughs> In one of the segments, that was great information that I didn't expect. He just he listed off a number of things that uh, I had not heard on the show before. So I know you're going to learn a lot from Nick today. And whether you're active or passive, you're going to need to know these things. No matter what kind of business you're in, you better have a team of experts around you. And the guy that we are interviewing today is one of those that you better have on your team. It's a, it's a must if you're in our space that you've got these expertise uh, on your team. You don't have to have them, but you better have somebody that does. And today our guest is Nick McGrew. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's very, very happy to be here and happy to share some insights and knowledge with you and the rest of the viewers. Yeah, honored to meet you, Nick, and have you on. Uh, again, I, I was telling Nick, he, he's got a number of clients that I've known for years, and, and uh, uh, he is uh, somebody in this space that, uh, man, you, you need to get to know. Yeah, either way, it's, you need to have these skill sets on your team. Nick, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about your practice, what you do, so they have a better understanding. And let's jump into some of these uh, new SEC rules that I know everyone's wondering about. Yeah, yeah. So as you said, my name is Nick McGrew. I'm the founder of Polymath Legal PC. At Polymath Legal, we help real estate investors lawfully raise capital so that they can generate passive income. Um, so with that, we focus on securities and mainly exempt securities. And so we're helping uh, clients, typically real estate clients, uh, raise capital for their projects. And that's anything from syndications to funds. And the industries are various. You know, we've got the more traditional multifamily. Uh, we got clients that do, you know, fix and flip funds. We've got short-term storage or uh, self-storage. 
um, all sorts of different areas. So if you're needing to raise capital and needing assistance navigating those very complex and nuanced laws and regulations, that's where we come in. Uh, we've been doing that. Uh, I think the first syndication I did probably was a decade ago. And then I'd say it's been heavily a part of our practice right now. It's probably 70% of what we do. And I'd say it's been that way probably for the last seven or eight years now. So it's what we're doing day in, day out and do quite a bit of it. Nice. Um, speak to your team a little bit. Uh, you know, how how large are you all? What does that look like? And where are you located? Yeah, so located in Inglewood, California, and uh, we're a small team, but growing the first probably decade or so, it was me doing everything. And then I realized I owned a job, not a business. And so I said, let me start thinking about this more as a business. And so um, right now, uh, we did kind of just scale back a little bit with, with businesses you're always refining. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so my attorney, uh, we're, we switched up the attorney that I had. So I'm actually hiring an attorney right now. Uh, but we have a legal assistant, a project manager. I have an executive assistant and a paralegal. And like I said, I'm uh, in the process of hiring an, another attorney and um, a marketing uh, coordinator as well. So we're awesome. growing and it's a lot of fun to be in this place in the business now. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, let's jump into some of these new SEC rules. Uh, you know, are you know are they new? And oftentimes, I I hear as well people say, "Oh, well, there's this this thing that this new rule that you need to know about," but it's actually been around for like three years or you know something like that. Or we're all just now hearing about it. Uh, but you know, unless I mean, you're the guy to to inform us, right? Uh, no doubt about it, uh, with your expertise. So what are some of the new rules? Let's jump into what that means for the operators, uh, you know, that are listening, or, or maybe even the investor, you know, passives as, as well. Yeah, yeah. So and this and this rule kind of is in that scenario that you talked about, so where the rule has kind of been there, but they give us some more clear guidance now as to how they're going to be enforcing it. And so one of the big things that I've seen this over the past couple of years, the SEC has been really uh, putting an emphasis on disclosures. You know, even when I've had some uh, clients that are getting um, having investigations, thankfully, it's investigated and nothing has been wrong. Uh, but one of the big things that I, they always would be looking at is, you know, did you disclose this? What are the disclosures? And so one uh, clarification they gave us, particularly when we're dealing with private funds, is that uh, a lot of times what happens is you might have either a pref equity group or somebody else is writing the big check and they might have a side letter or some other special terms. And sometimes those terms would be uh, hidden or confidential or just between the issuer and that big check writer. And so the SEC has said, hey, you got to be clear and transparent. And if one member knows it, then all the members have to know it. So those confidential side letters are uh, a thing of the past. Um, and additionally, they're just, uh, they really emphasize about the disclosures, about the terms, about executive compensation. I'd say that's one thing that a lot of issuers really want to focus on is that whenever I get, uh, and usually it's actually state securities administrators, but whenever they're inquiring about a filing or something, one of the first things they ask for is they say, show me where you talked about use of proceeds and executive compensation. And so um, the SEC uh, put this out probably not too too long ago, but essentially they uh, emphasize that that's some of the things that they're going to be looking at and focusing on is those disclosures. And again, the main thing was making sure that everybody's on equal footing. So they don't, they don't want big check writers having information that the smaller check writers don't have. Okay. Okay, so getting everybody on equal or level playing field here, right? No matter if they put in ninety percent of the capital or five or two percent. Yep. So you mentioned uh, no more of this confidential side letters. 
um, or you said it's a thing of the past, right? Just what is that exactly? Like elaborate on what that means exactly, or or maybe how you know why somebody would have done it that way, uh, just in case somebody's been doing this and maybe they don't realize it's what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. So let's say I've, I got a project and I've got to raise twenty million dollars. Um, so that's what I got to do to get into it, etc. And so I might, you know, reach out to my normal retail investors that are might be investing a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars, and that's great. But then if somebody, say a family office comes to me and says, hey, we like this project. We want to invest $8 million. I'd love that because that's almost half of my raise right there. But they know that I'm going to love that as well. And they know the benefit they're giving to me. And so they say, we'll give you $8 million, but we see what you're giving everybody else. We're we're better. We're special than that. And so we want better terms. So here's what we need. And so a lot of times the returns might be better. Also, many times because we're dealing with, you know, quasi institutions here, they have the personnel to actually run this deal if they want to. And so a lot of times they'll say, hey, if you're not hitting certain metrics, then we have the right to take this deal over and run it because we have the bulk of the capital in here. And uh, in addition to that, they often do probably have either higher prefs. Um, they're probably actually higher in the capital stack to begin with and getting paid out sooner and potentially better returns overall. And so obviously, if you're giving your most of your investors 7% and somebody else is getting 11%, you're not going to be too thrilled about wanting to tell them that, even though there clearly is some good reason, you know, they're giving $8 million, you got to pay for that. Um, but still, nonetheless, your other investors are going to say, wait, why do they get 11 and I'm getting seven? And so a lot of times you would, uh, you might not have wanted to uh, convey that. And since they weren't investing in that membership class, you may not have had to. Uh, but now the SEC has said, hey, if you're going to uh, do the one, they said, we don't like those special classes anyway, and we're going to be looking at them very closely. Uh, but if you are doing that, then you definitely need to make sure that everybody is privy to that information. Um, so yeah, it's a, a big change from a lot of how uh, many people might have practiced it before. Yeah, yeah, no, and I would expect that you know a family office or somebody coming in with that kind of capital uh, are going to want some special treatment, no doubt about it. Uh, you know, or push that that weight around a little bit, uh, and so I, I think that's pretty common that they're they're going to request that. Uh, so I, I guess the the problem I could see is it's kind of we've already got our PPM drafted, already got our documents put together you know, and we're out raising money. And then this potential partner or family office comes and approaches us. And we didn't have these special terms in the agreement already, right? Or in the PPM. And so that's why we might try to add a side letter. Is that accurate? Yep, exactly. So, uh, so uh, could we just uh, create another class for them or something like that? Could we just go back and alter you know, the documents to create another class uh, or, or, you know, I guess walk us through, um, you know, some maybe better ways to, to do this. Yeah, so you can create another class and the SEC wasn't saying that you couldn't have special terms. You know, you as the issuer can set, you know, and, and many times I'll have clients that will have multiple classes and right. some classes might have higher minimums and those higher minimum classes are going to have better returns. Makes sense. The issue comes is that it's kind of like you were saying is that, this class is not created or the terms are not disclosed and we're kind of making it on the fly. And so with that, do you, you still can do this. You're going to definitely need to disclose it. And then depending on what those terms are, you might actually need to have your investors re-sign because if the terms that you're giving to that family office are going to change or affect the terms that you are giving to your retail investor, you'd need to let them know and have them reconfirm that they're okay with that. That was going to be my question. How do we disclose this properly or have it documented? Right. So it is so we can confirm. Uh, but 
that seems to answer it. I mean, you, you are going to have to say redo your doc, your legal docs, and have whoever's invested already resign. Is that yeah? And practice, maybe not, I guess, and not necessarily a redo, uh, but we'll do a, a PPM supplement. So we'll say, hey, you got the PPM d uh, dated October first. This is to provide additional information and supplement that. And so then we add in whatever those new terms are. So it's not a brand new, complete redo of the PPM, but uh, they get, depending on how complex it is, it might be a one or two pager that explains the new changes, the risk factors involved and other uh, information that's important for them. Yeah. So then they're reviewing two or three pages versus 150. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. All right. We would all appreciate that. That's for sure. Yes. Uh, what about uh, any other new rules, anything else um, that we need to be aware of? Those are the new ones, the big ones uh, now. Uh, yeah, I'd say just disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. And this is something that I always tell clients anyway, uh, you know, sharing information, even if it's bad, the information is what it is. Uh, and usually holding it back is not going to help you. And in most cases, it's going to hurt you. So they're emphasizing disclosure. And I, I agree with that. I think that even, I and this is more anecdotal, not necessarily empirical, but people typically don't sue people that they trust and believe and that they like. And so if you're somebody that's communicating regularly, if you're somebody that's telling them the good stuff and the bad stuff, they're going to look at you as somebody who's trustworthy because you are acting trustworthy. And so if something bad does happen, this we're in this industry, this is a risky industry. These investments are not guaranteed. Bad things do happen. And it doesn't mean that somebody was doing something bad or nefarious. So if one of those bad things do happen and you've been very communicative and stay that way, you're just as the issuer are going to save yourself a lot of headache because your investors are not going to be saying what's going on. Are they, you know, are they about to be one of the new headlines that we're seeing about people in this industry? Are they doing something that's, you know, taking my money or something like that? They're going to say, oh yeah, no. Uh, when he told me about this, he said at the last quarterly uh, informational, he said, this is one of the potential things he was looking at. He, these are the things that he was going to do to try to mitigate that. And here we are. And I was expecting that. Yeah, I'm not happy about it. But Whitney let me know about this. So I know that this is just part of the game that I signed up for. Um, so yeah, I always encourage very regular communication, whether it's good or bad information. And the SEC is kind of just more so saying, yeah, not only should you, you need to now. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Uh, just detailed uh, in how we explain, right? And how we get the information out. You mentioned even in the say quarterly or monthly updates, whatnot. Uh, any any ways that we should be thinking through those updates as we're putting out information in that way uh, to make sure we're disclosing anything that should be disclosed? I don't know. Just any thoughts around those updates on the legal side? Yeah. So number one, I say do them. Even if you feel like there's not a whole lot to update, um, because it, it kind of goes back to what I was uh, pointing at is that if you, they know you're regularly, regularly communicating, then there's going to be less stories they can create in their head if things go wrong. Um, but also with that too, is that it actually helps you, the issuer, when you have that bad news, because you are regularly communicating. And so they're expecting you to tell them stuff. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's maybe not the best. Whereas if they don't hear from you for, from a year, and then you're like, hey, so we're going to have to uh, stop distributions or even worse, we're going to have to do a capital call or whatever thing it might be. 
if they haven't heard from you in a year, they're going to be like, wait, he's actually reaching out to me now. This must be really, really bad because normally he's not you know, talking much. Whereas if they're like, oh, yeah, this is the normal quarterly or monthly cadence that we're normally at, uh, they would just be expecting that there's going to be information. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad, but it's they're not going to put extra emphasis or value on its goodness or badness because it's kind of more routine because they're used to getting that some information from you in some way. Yeah. Okay. Now that makes complete sense. I hope that all the operators listening are doing uh, at least quarterly updates. Uh, yeah. I would encourage that uh, or maybe even monthly. And, and I know that that may fluctuate depending on what's going on right now with your deal. You may need to do more often, <laughs> you know, Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, for, for some, but, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, as far as the, uh, is it, or what's the, what would you suggest as far as for the operators to be able to like know that changes like this are coming, you know, like, you know, if, and we, most of them probably have a SEC attorney, I hope uh, on their, on their team. Right. Um, and, but what's the best way for say them to learn about these things or is there a, a good way other than just bugging their attorney? Yeah, I mean, bugging the attorneys, obviously, that's uh, an easy one. That's part of what we're here for. Uh, the sure. SEC's website, though, they put out their press releases. Um, I'd imagine they probably have an RSS feed or something like that, so you can probably get that. Um, myself and probably many other securities attorneys as well subscribe to various legal databases. And so whenever there's something new, it gets pushed uh, to us right away. Um, so that's why it might be kind of easier to go to the attorney, just because we have stuff in place that where it's going to feed us the new stuff. Whereas if you're trying to do it on your own, you probably have to be a bit more proactive. And as an operator, you've got plenty of other things to do, I'm sure, than trying to figure out all the all the things the SEC is doing or not doing. Yeah. Any other... Any other uh... I don't know, issues that you see right now that fund managers are doing right now, or that you see some common, I don't know, practices that may not be top of the line at, at the moment or any anything that we could help the listener with? Yeah, one area where there's either a lot of confusion or either maybe I'm going to say willful ignorance around it <laughs> is uh, finder's fees, mm. you know, paying your, your capital raises, which not the huge, I'm not the biggest fan of that term. Um, because typically if you're paying somebody a commission to raise capital, they need to be licensed. Uh, they have, a, I have to have a broker dealer license to sell that security. Otherwise it's unlawful. Uh, so I've, I've seen many situations where people try to change the names or call it different things or explain it in different ways. And I say, we both know exactly what you're doing. And if the SEC ever had to look at it, they would know exactly what you're doing as well. Um, and the, the finders, finders fees rules right now are not good for how people practice. Uh, as I said, you know, if you're not licensed, you can't have get paid a commission. Technically, what they say is that you can't receive a transaction-based compensation. So meaning your compensation, your payment can't be based upon an investment being made or how much investment is being made. But obviously that's what people would want to do. That's what makes the most sense. Instead though, what you can do, and most people don't do this because it's not that helpful, but what you can do is pay a true finder's fee. And a finder's fee is for an introduction. You're paying them for the introduction and then it's for the two of them to figure out what may or may not happen. And you're getting paid regardless of what happens from that relationship. And so from the operator perspective, that kind of stinks because I could say, hey, Whitney, I know a bunch of people pay me $5,000 a person. They all, all have their own family offices. And you're thinking, awesome, that's great. I introduce you to 10 of them. I've got 50 grand in my pocket. 
And all 10 of them might say, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I don't, I don't want it. And so now you're out 50 grand and have gotten nothing from it. But if we were doing a true finder's fee, that's how it would have to take place. And so I see people trying to uh, do all sorts of things. Or even if you're, I've seen situations where people are say, oh, I'm not a capital raiser. I'm part of the GP. And then I look and there's like 50 other GPs on your more standard, you know, 100 unit multifamily. You don't need 50 people to take down a 100 unit multifamily deal. Um, so again, you can try to be creative as what you as as creative as you want to be. But a lot of times we can see exactly what it is. And, and people think it's a loophole and it's and we can see right through it. And it's not really a loophole. And so if it was ever to be found out, I think that people would have some issues there. Yeah, I, I'm man, I, I love the detail that you went into there because you answered some of my questions. But I was going to tell you. You know, I've I've heard of this. We've not done finder fees, uh, you know, at LifeBridge, uh, uh, but I did check into it at one time, and 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 ultimately uh, was told exactly what you just said. Like you can you can pay them, uh, but it's for making the introduction. It's not obviously based on any kind of capital raised, right? Uh, but it's like you said, you could pay them a lot of money and not, you know, and not have any qualified investors from it. Uh, and one one thought there, though, uh, to do that and to do it legally, uh, how would you document that? Like, to, or you know, what would be that process to know? Hey, if, if we're ever investigated, I can show. Oh no, John Doe sent me these five investors, and you know, this is how we handled that. Yeah. So part of it is you have a, a, a finder's fee agreement that clearly outlines what, how you can be paid, when you're supposed to be paid, when it's earned and showing that it's earned at the introduction and not based upon um, the, the compensation or anything like that. And then the other way to help substantiate it would be to actually document the, the meetings that you had. And particularly if there are people that didn't invest, showing that you still paid that finder's fee nonetheless. And that, so that would go a strong way towards showing that you are truly, this is truly a finder's fee because you'll have receipts of you paying even when there's no investment made. Um, one way that I've had clients kind of like it, and again, it's not perfect, but it, it, it burns a little bit less is that I, I had one client to where we said it, instead of it doing like a payment per investor, it was for a time period. So $1,000 a month, you're going to send me everybody that you think. And so it's $1,000 where you send me one person, if you send me 10 people, whether I get one investment, five investments, zero investments. Um, but that one's time-based more. So the the burn is a little bit less because you can do it for a month. And if you're like, yeah, this person's not delivering, then you can just stop and say, yeah, they're introducing me to people that aren't working. And so maybe this finder's fee arrangement wouldn't work. Again, still not perfect, but it takes a little bit of the singe off of it. I've not heard of that before or even thought about paying for a time period. So that would be the agreement. I'm paying you however much, $10,000 for however many months or whatever it is. And just for you to send me as many as you can. Yep. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's inter that's interesting. But I, I like to just the the documenting of hey, uh, maybe they send you one, you just go ahead and pay them right then. If you're doing you're doing it the other way per referral, um, yeah. And then you would have some even the transactions noted there that hey, we may not even be raising money during that time, but you could see, mm -hmm. um, yeah, the transactions taking place outside of a capital raise. Um, during a capital raise might be a little harder to prove that, right? Yeah, just because it's kind of simultaneously, right. I'll get yeah. a little harder there. Yeah. Okay. No, that's that's incredible. Uh, anything else on finders fees that you see uh, people asking questions about or doing it the wrong way? I don't know. I just want to hit that really well because I, I get questions about that also. 
Yeah, that's the the main uh, issues is, yeah, if you're paying a commission, so their payment is contingent upon an investment being made or how much, then they've got to be a licensed broker dealer. They're, I have lost hope at this point. Uh, two years ago, there was a proposed rule that would allow people to do it how they want. Essentially, you just have to have an agreement that says they're a finder. You'd have to disclose that they're a finder getting paid a commission. They wouldn't have to have a broker dealer license or anything like that. And people could do essentially what I know a lot of people are already doing right now. Um, but that rule has been proposed for probably two, maybe even two and a half years now. And I haven't seen any traction or movement. Um, so I'm starting to lose hope. Still a glimmer. They haven't taken it completely off the table, um, but haven't seen any traction or movement on that proposed rule. to, to switch. They would dramatically switch this up and I think make it a lot better and easier for a lot of people. Yeah, that would be kind of crazy. <laughs> and so uh, anyway, well, Nick, we're going to end this segment here with the listeners. know we're going to do a, a, another segment uh, with Nick as well and dive in on some other topics. Uh, Nick, grateful for your time today, uh, just hammering in uh, on these new SEC rules that we all need to be aware of and, and making sure that we're disclosing all these things to everyone involved, right? All the all the partners mm -hmm. uh, involved in a deal, uh, and even diving into finders fees and and how that should be done and or potentially be done. I would say uh, even if you did it like Nick said, you should call him and talk to him about your specific situation. Would you agree, Nick? Yes, yes. As <laughs> we've been talking, this is all very nuanced, and so yeah, I've been talking about generalities and right. things that often work, but there's always nuanced differences, and you want to make sure you're getting advice for your unique situation. For sure. Nick, thank you so much. Uh, how can the listeners get in touch with you and learn more about you? Yeah, you can reach me at polymathlegal.com. That's P-O-L-Y-M-A-T-H-L-E-G-A-L.com. Or you can find me on social media. It's at Nick the Lawyer. That's Nick with no K. So at N-I-C the Lawyer. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.